Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, the Son of God made man, that we might be redeemed out of our sin. We thank you for the Gospel of Mark and how it points us to Jesus. We thank you for his power and authority over all things. We thank you for his faithfulness to obey you even to the point of being humiliated on a cross. And we thank you for the resurrection and how it is our hope in this life and for eternity. And we thank you for your spirit that dwells in us and makes us able to walk in the same way in which Jesus himself walked. I pray that as we look at Mark's gospel today, that um, that you would touch our hearts and our minds to love you more, and yeah, that you would draw us deeper into the way of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 45 here. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6, verse 45. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. You know what? I just realized this audio is not correct. Okay, sorry. All right. Uh, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I like that little scene. It's kind of cool. Uh, I have mentioned before that Mark uses this word immediately a lot. Uh, and I, I decided to like do a little word study on it. 42 times in his gospel, he is using this word to keep the story moving, which is quite a lot. So Jesus tells his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. Remember back in this same chapter in verses 30 to 33, uh, the disciples had just returned from Jesus sending them out to go talk to people and proclaim the gospel and share the good news. They'd just come back from doing ministry. They were exhausted. The text told us that they didn't even have leisure to eat. And uh, they continue to just be harassed by these crowds, right? And now Jesus sends them onto these boats so that they can, at least as they cross the lake, get a little bit of peace and quiet. Anybody ever hung out on a boat? Small rowboat? Big lake? I don't. Yeah, it's kind of peaceful, right? Well, when the storm came, all I was on it. So. Did it really? Well, on a lake or a... Yeah, it was on a lake, yeah. Really? Wow. What was that like? Was it crazy? It was kind of scary, yeah. We tried to get back to the shore as fast as we could because the water was already... Like a rowboat? How many people... It was like a little, like, aluminum I, it's funny because I'm prone to read this story and be like, I mean, come on, how bad can a storm on a lake be? But you were in it. It was scary? He's, he's kind of scary, yeah. Oh, that's like, interesting. Especially because it was metal and we got the lightning. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be terrifying. Well, um, 
you know, on a on a lake where there aren't crazy winds and there isn't a storm, hanging out on a, on a out on a boat is a pretty uh, relaxing, peaceful thing. I mean, even if you have to row the oars, there's something about a calm lake and just the quiet of nature that is kind of refreshing. Um, but Jesus sends his disciples into the boats and out into the solitude of the lake, and he steps into his element and disperses this crowd and uh, does the ministry that they didn't have energy to continue doing. And I would imagine that him sending them onto the boats was was actually quite a gift to them um, because crowds can get a little crazy. But after dismissing the crowds, somehow Jesus manages to escape them. He's quite good at making his way through crowds. Does anybody remember the story where at one point um, they actually want to like crown him king and he kind of just makes his way through the crowd and disappears and I think there's another point too where they are threatening to like throw him off a cliff and he he manages to just sort of part the crowd and disappear so when when Jesus wanted to be away from people he was quite good at escaping them um, but after escaping them he heads into some solitude for prayer and communion with God the Father now you would think that Jesus, the Son of God, wouldn't need to seek solitude for this kind of thing. And I think that he doesn't necessarily need to seek solitude for this kind of thing. Um, you know, at one point he says that he's always doing what he sees the Father doing. So there's this constant communion and communication between him and the Father. And yet um, he is eager to find himself with some solitude, some silence an opportunity to just be alone with God. And um, solitude, silence, prayer. Has, has anybody heard of what are called like the disciplines of the Christian life? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Can anybody name other disciplines of the Christian life? Fasting. Fasting is a discipline. Devotion, but I think that devotion would probably be connected with um, prayer and solitude and silence. But devotion is a word that we use to describe the disciplines of the Christian life. Yes. Like reading scripture. Reading scripture, absolutely. Study is actually a discipline. Meditation. Yeah, meditation. I think there's different words for it. I think Christians generally try to stay away from that word even though i actually think it's a helpful word because of like the eastern religion aspect of it where meditation is like emptying your mind but for the christian the idea of filling your mind thinking on god scripture says in joshua 1 uh do not let this book of the law depart from your heart but meditate on it day and night right so thinking about scripture thinking on god is a discipline of the christian life things like worship are a discipline um, we probably don't talk about the disciplines of the Christian life enough. And by this, what we're really describing is um, habits or practices that bring us into deeper fellowship with God. Okay. Um, there's a couple good books on this. If you're interested, I can um, maybe make them available on a chair in the back. Or I'll just pass them around. Spirit of the Disciplines, good book, just about... Uh, what the disciplines tend to accomplish in our lives in sort of transforming us. Um, I like the way Dallas Willard talks about this, where he talks about Christian maturity is learning to 
essentially easily and habitually do what Jesus himself would do. Um, and then another one that's kind of a classic is uh, the celebration of discipline by Richard Foster. And he lists in here, yeah, meditation, prayer, fasting, study, simplicity. So that would be, you know, just pruning your life of stuff. How much stuff do you have and how much it owns you? Solitude, submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, celebration. So I'll pass these around in case you want to look at them. I mean, I, I highly recommend either both of these books. They're, they're good books. Um, but Jesus practiced what we might call the disciplines of the Christian life. Again, these are habits that if we were to practice them ourselves, would certainly lead us into deeper fellowship with God. And uh, the church through many millennia has recognized the importance of disciplines like solitude and prayer. Um, it, you know, the church has looked at these different in different ways or, or different times has used different words to define them. Um, but these are things that are vital to the Christian life. Any thoughts or questions on this? Sometimes this can be a uh, like a little bit of a controversial topic because I, I would put this under the category of like spiritual formation. How are we intentionally being spiritually formed more into the image of Jesus? Um, but at different points in history, like the term mysticism has been involved or has, has touched on this. I don't like that word so much because I think it communicates that this is something that is like kind of unexplainable or mysterious. Um, but in fact, this is just doing the kinds of things that scripture tells us that we should do. All right. Any questions on disciplines of the Christian life? I'm not going to go into a whole thing on this. Actually, I think if you are interested, I did an adult Sunday school class through the disciplines and I think it's recorded. So if you wanted to look for that on our um, podcast, you could probably still find that. All right, this takes place during the fourth watch of the night. Anybody know when that is? Jesus comes to them during the fourth watch of the night. Nine o'clock? It is actually between 3 and 6 a.m. So I think that it's implied here that Jesus has literally been up all night praying. Um, and I guess then the disciples have been up all night rowing. Um, I thought they were good at boats, but for some reason in this scene, they seem to be struggling to make it across the lake. Um, yeah, it's verse, like verse 47 says, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And, but it says that on, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. That's verse 48. So Jesus has been praying all night. There's no indication that he slept. Did Jesus need to sleep? Yes. I think he did, right? He is, he is fully man. And so he needs the same things that we need as people. Uh, but this is reminiscent, I think, of John chapter 4, verse 32 where uh, the disciples go to get some food and Jesus essentially says, you know, I'm not hungry. And they're like, what are you talking about? You haven't eaten anything. And he says, well, I have food that you don't know anything about. Um, 
did Jesus need to eat? Yes. Like, even after the resurrection, we have scenes of him eating. But I do think that Jesus found nourishment in being with God that was so great that it worked as some kind of substitute for his physical needs, at least to a point where his fellowship with God was so spiritually nourishing, so rich, that prayer was more nourishing to him than even sleep. I would love to get to that place. I find that it goes the other way around, that like when I try to invest intentional focused time in prayer, what ends up happening? I often drift into sleep. Does anybody else have that problem? I mean, actually, this is maybe embarrassingly sad, but, you know, on nights where I'm struggling to fall asleep, because a lot of times I have a hard time falling asleep, I know what will work. I just start to pray. For some reason, I fall asleep. Maybe that's because praying focuses my mind on him and the anxiety goes away. Maybe maybe that's it. I would like that to be the case. Reading the Bible makes me sleep. Yeah, reading the Bible makes, makes you sleep. That actually doesn't work for me. I mean, reading theology books will sometimes put me to sleep, but for some reason, at least with the Bible, it's kind of like, this is, I find curious things that get my mind working. But prayer, I think, can be difficult, right? Because you're like focusing your mind on something that is intangible. And so I think it can, it can be a difficult discipline. And yet for Jesus, he found more um, rest in it than even sleep. So he was doing it till sometime like three in the morning. And uh, after he finishes praying, he ends up walking on the water. And he, even though it's windy, um, and I, I don't know how big the waves could get in the Sea of Galilee. How big, how, when you were in the storm in the boat, how big do you think the waves were? Like this. Really? A couple yeah. feet? Wow. But um, I hear the Sea of Galilee because of the way the wind yeah, come, it can get really crazy. Really crazy. I, I spent a little bit of time on the shore of Lake Superior, which is like one of the biggest uh, lakes. I mean, it's one of the great lakes, right? And I mean, the waves on Lake Superior can get five, six feet. Um, but even if it was one foot, uh, you know, it's very difficult to walk on ground that is that tumbly. Um, and then you add to the fact that Jesus is literally walking on water, which, you know, as far as physics is concerned, is simply not possible. But remember that this is the man who just showed in the feeding of the 5,000 where he turned five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men, so 10, 15,000 people probably, that um, it is not difficult for Jesus to create matter. It's not difficult for Jesus to manipulate matter. I mean, the entire universe is like putty in his hands. So the man who can make matter can also bend it to his will. And it is true that the laws of physics govern the universe. They're sort of immutable. You can't really change things like the laws of physics that we were talking about the last time we get together. Um, but 
who do the laws of physics bend to? The creator. Right? They, they are themselves subject to their own master, the lawgiver. Um, you know, the laws in, in the universe, the scientific laws that we call them that, they, they exist because there is a lawgiver, right, who has declared these things to be. And his will ultimately is a higher law. Um, so the fact of the matter is God is immutable, which means unchangeable. But the material universe is not immutable. It is, in fact, changeable. If God declares it to be so, then it will be. And I want to point out again that this is not a magic trick. Okay? I think we could think that when Jesus feeds 5,000, you know, he's like a Las Vegas performer. And he's like doing some sleight of hand behind his back where he's got, you know, food. And he just keeps pulling it out of a rabbit or a, a hat, like a rabbit out of a hat, right? This is not a magic trick. This is... The God who made the material universe, commanding it to do exactly as he pleases. It is no more difficult for Jesus, the Son of God, to walk on water than it is for him to walk on grass. And it, um, and it, doesn't, and it doesn't erase that there is a law. There, there is a, there's still a law of gravity, a law yeah. of physics, but he enters into that. Yes. Yeah, that's good. It's true. He in, in walking on the water, he is not undoing the totality of the law. He's just transcendent over it. That's good. We're going to get up, get into this a little bit more. We'll look at a couple other passages that connect with this, but we'll hold off for a few more minutes before we turn there. Verse 48 says he meant to pass by them. Um, I don't think that this means that his intention was to like, you know, zip on by them and meet them on the other side of the lake here. Uh, earlier in that same verse, we're told that he came to them, right? So if you look at verse 48, it says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. So it was his intention always to sort of track them down and step into the boat with them and join them. This language of he meant to pass by them. Uh, this Greek word can also mean that you stop at a place as somebody comes by, right? So as you are going by, you stop at a particular place. Um, so I think Jesus was always intending to join them. I think the reason for this language is to highlight the fact that they were freaked out when they saw this man walking on water, right? They thought he was some kind of ghost or an apparition. Which I don't know what else would you think? Like, I would be freaked out, wouldn't you? You'd be like, what is going on here? <laughs> okay, they all saw him. The text says that. Um, verse 49 or verse 50, for they all saw him. I think that emphasis is significant. You know, there are lots of claims today by materialists who deny supernatural things that all of the things that take place in the New Testament that appear supernatural can be explained away by saying something like, well, these people were tripping, you know, they were hallucinating. Um, but there's too many instances of many people witnessing these kinds of things for it to be some kind of mass hallucination. They were terrified because they understood that what they were seeing was not possible. And yet, they were seeing it. 
right? This is not possible for a person to do this. It's possible, however, for God to do this. Um, and I, I think that this verse or this little scene has kind of a beautiful application for us. So play along with me while I tease this out, okay? I, I think that uh, I think that there is kind of a bit of maybe what's the word? I don't really want to use the word allegory because I feel like that's misleading. We can read this story and I think we can take some things and say this is this is true of the Christian life. So um, Jesus sends the disciples to do his will, right? Get in the boats, go across the river or go across the lake. And what is the result in verse 48? How does that go? You see it there in verse 48? Painful headway. Yeah, right? They struggle to do what he was commanding them to do. And uh, the wind was against them. Um, I mean, there's lots of things against us when we go to do the will of Jesus. What things can you think of come to mind? What operates against us when we go to do the will of Jesus? People. The flesh, right? Our sinful nature, other people. They might disparage us, discourage us. Scripture says we have an enemy. We have a spiritual enemy who is against us. He comes to still steal, kill, and destroy. We also just live in a broken, fallen world. We have a world system. I mean, I don't know if you guys heard, but over the last couple of weeks, there have been, I think it was 11 people who were protesting an abortion clinic who've been arrested and thrown in jail um, just for expressing their opinion that abortion is evil. So there are lots of things that work against us when we attempt to do the will of Jesus. But verse uh, 48 says that when Jesus saw them, he came to them walking on the sea. And he speaks to them in verse 50. And he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then he gets into the boat with them. Right? So I recognize that this is a story about Jesus and the disciples and something he did that was a particular experience that they had with him. But this is very much how Jesus operates in relationship with his people. Right? We are commanded to go and do his will. We struggle to do it. Jesus comes to us with encouragement. He operates with us through the Spirit in that obedience. And then things go well. Or at least the struggle is not as daunting. We are not guaranteed to fail, but we are guaranteed to be more than conquerors. Any questions about that? Thoughts? Comments? Um, I would encourage you to memorize the end of verse 50. Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That would be an encouraging verse to know, I think. And, uh, you know, if you think about the fact that they're in kind of a tempest, right? The winds are blowing, they're in the dark, they can't really see 
um, you know, that's, those are times where we need the encouragement of Jesus to be reminded that he's with us. So verse uh, 50 there where Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Um, the Greek construction for the phrase, it is I, is very similar to our English. It's these two words, ego, a me. Ego, a me. Ego is the Greek word for I. A me is the Greek word, the Greek word for being. I am. Okay. Um, so Jesus says something like, I am me. I am I. It, it is me, right? Does anybody know where something similar to that is said in Scripture? Yeah, the burning bush. Exactly. And in fact, if you look at the Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the English, I'm sorry, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, it was completed like 200, 250 AD, somewhere in, or I'm sorry, BC, somewhere in there. Um, it's a very similar construction. When Moses says to God at the burning bush, who should I say sent me to the children of Abraham, to Israel? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the construction there is ego, a me, a me. I, I am, I am. I am the one who is, essentially. So of Jesus here in this scene on the lake is identifying himself to his uh, disciples. But I don't think it's a coincidence that he chooses this construction. He could have said something like, it's Jesus. But he says, ego e me. It's me. I am. And what does, what does this phrase, at least in Exodus at the burning bush, what does this phrase, ego e me, e me, mean? Anybody want to take a crack at what that signifies? Yeah, what, what does... It's a title. It is a title, absolutely, totally. But I think even in the title, it's communicating something, that right? That he always was. There. That he always was. Say it again. That he just exists. That he exists. And, and I think that's, that's the direction that I would want to take it, right? What does it mean to be God? There's probably multiple ways that we could answer that question, but one of them is... You are dependent upon nothing for your existence. You are self-existent. You are eternal in the sense that you have no origin. There's nothing over you. There's nothing greater than you. There's nothing that gave birth to your existence. You simply are. Being is a thing because you have your being. That's in part what it means to be God. And so Jesus, even though he's man in the flesh, is, I mean, he claims that about himself, right? E even, if, even if he's not doing it here, when the Pharisees say to him, you know, who are you? He says, before Abraham was, I tell you, I am. So God alone is eternal. I don't want to get off topic, but do you think that means there's a difference between us having eternal life? It doesn't mean we always existed. It means our life's not going to be in the eternal spirit where there is no, no ending. So 
we have immortality and everlasting life. But God alone is eternal. Yeah, I, I do think that if we're going to be careful with words, which we should, it, it helps to distinguish between eternal and everlasting. Okay. Now, can you say, you know, for the Christian, we have eternal life? Yes, because we're not debating that we have an origin, right? Like we recognize there was a moment where I was not and then I became, right? God made me. But Yes, if we're going to talk precisely theologically about who God is and who we are, God is eternal because eternal means there's no beginning or end. We have everlasting life, which means that we began at a point of origin and will live forever because our being is in him. Is that, is that helpful? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're in some kind of theological discussion, it's it's helpful to pay attention to that because if you're talking with a mormon and you use something like eternal life they actually believe that you have an eternally pre-existent soul or i guess i shouldn't say it quite like that i mean they they believe that your soul existed before the moment of conception that it was with god in heaven you were a spirit child i guess i don't know even though i like i've read their long document on their doctrines um i guess i don't know when they believe that your soul was initially created i do know that they they believe that like spiritually god and his wife had sex in heaven and then your soul came into existence before your body came into existence whereas we as christians would say god creates the soul at the moment that you're conceived that was a little bit of a tangent was that helpful or did that create more confusion I mean, it's it's worth talking about. Corey, you look like maybe you have a question. No, you're like, you're just like what? Weird. What's that? Mormonism is weird. Mormonism is weird. So <laughs> I, I think, particularly if you're discussing this with a Mormon, you would want to be very clear that you don't believe that your soul is eternal, because I think they would say that. You would say your soul is everlasting. Different. But even that, you know, I'm gonna debate because that's what the. the the man seeks his immortality. It's not. It sounds like it's something that is available, but not inherent in just being born. Say so, that again. Because um, the way you said that was that we have an eternal soul. I don't know that everyone has an eternal soul. I think only the Christians do. Because man, man, for those that seek immortality, that's like. That's the privilege of the Christian is immortality, not non-Christian. Yeah, so Rick is opening up. Uh, a, no, it's okay. It's fun. It's worth talking about. Rick is opening up a, a can of worms that he and I discussed a little bit just about um, does the Bible teach that everybody whose soul exists will exist forever, right? right. I believe that. So tr the... the, the the sort of main stream, at least as far as I understand, position of Christian Christianity through most of history has been that everyone's soul once created will live forever. The question is, does it live forever in the presence of God, you know, united to him through the blood of Christ and the spirit of God, or alternatively separated from him in eternal punishment in hell? 
Um, and the church has debated this. You know, there's brilliant guys like John Stott who the, the technical term for this is if you don't believe that every soul is eternal is annihilationism. That at some point God will extinguish the souls of those who do not love him, do not trust him. And part of the reason is because everlasting life is part of the blessing of honoring God. Right? God's going to take care of sin once and for all. He's not going to allow it to go on forever. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this is a, a hot and heavy debate that uh, is is still continuing. Um, so I don't know, maybe at some point we could do like a little church. We could record a little discussion on that. Maybe that would be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. I uh, think one, one thing I would say, though, is... Um, be careful if, because a lot of people that don't care about God, but do care about living forever, because they don't understand. They think going to hell with their friends and everything's going to be good, and they got eternal life too. In that scenario, they don't. Yeah, they're going to die. Yeah, that's the fear of man is death, not the unknown. You know. I died in suffering too. But they don't believe that, and that's the problem. And I'm not sure I believe it either. And I'm a Christian. You know, I think they're going to face death, and they're going to see the consequences that they could have had in life forever with Christ. And I'm, I'm not saying they're not going to be punished and tormented and for time. I just don't know that they have the privilege of living forever. That is something man has to seek after. So, anyways, I'll I'll relent. But I mean, it, it really is a change changing thing in how you speak about and, and you have to evangelize and, and you have to differentiate I guess between spirit and spirit and soul I, I don't differentiate between spirit and soul I'm a, I'm a, what's called a dichotomist so I think man is you know body and soul and included in soul is mind heart will spirit all of those things are just different words for the same thing but but I, I do think I mean, there's a reason why there's some debate around this, right? Because you do have Jesus saying things like, you know, the smoke of their torment will go up forever. So what does that mean? But the Bible is pretty clear that life, true life, is is not breath in your lungs. It is connection to God himself, right? So God says to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Well, they ate the fruit. Did they physically perish? Well, it says, in dying, they shall die. And that's a batch. If you, if you go to the original language, in dying you will die, which means they started to die. They started to wither. They just had the privilege of whether the earth was different or whether they had eaten from the tree of life and, it, and imparted some extenuating things. But that's what it says. In dying you will die. Yeah, but you've got Jesus, and I don't know the exact reference, but Scripture saying there is no life apart from him. Right? So... Uh, I think you can make the argument from Scripture that, you know, that at least in part the definition of death is just a severed connection to the Creator. So but they weren't separated because a few verses later, the Cain, God's talking to him. He says, "Your brother." I mean, he was talking to God. He wasn't separated from God. I mean, in the sense that. But separated from God, God has a relationship with every person. I would say what, sep- what I mean by separated from God is that there is no life p- passing from him to you. Um, I mean, you have literal physical life, but you have no spiritual life. And that's death. 
but they need to eat from the tree of life, not just be with God. Anyway, one, one other thing, the, the verse that he said, the uh, their smoke doesn't, it says their smoke does, not the person. And so same with the worm. If anything, the worms have eternal life, and the smoke is going to smolder forever. But, I mean, that's just like, to me, a picture of a fire smoldering forever as a memorial to, that's what happened to those that weren't Christ. Not that they're going to be there forever. It says their smoke. Yeah, and I mean, again, like, I... I enjoy the discussion. I think it's great. I, I, I think these are the kinds of discussions we should be having because I think it can be easy to fall into like, well, yeah, that's just what I always believed. Is that really what the Bible teaches? Um, and it does make it hard. Whenever This is why you know striving for unity is good because honestly, there's a point in where we can't even, not me, but anybody that has different, there's a point where you sever and you start, I can't even like understand that line anymore because... You're going a different way. So when we're talking about things, it's like, I don't know. That's not Unpack that a little bit more. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. I mean, so for instance, just like end times or whatever. There's a point in which when people disagree, it's like, well, this is how the millennial kingdom's going to go. This is how the end's going to go. Well, there's a point when we're talking about these things in a certain paradigm, the way it is. But like the other person's lost or just not even able to entertain those things because they just don't see it that way. Sure. So, Unity is a, is a good thing for Christians, but it is a sense which takes labor and, and yeah. patience and love. and um, yeah. So. It does, and it is a high value for Christians. I mean, it, I, yeah, truth and unity together are both high, high values for Christians, right? And you can't, you can't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity, um, but you also shouldn't be quick to separate from somebody who truly is a believer in Christ. Right. I, but I think one thing for unity is understanding, okay, this person thinks this way, I can back off and start going back to the, the, the fork in the road rather than trying to start fixing things yeah. where we're already this far apart. That's good. To go back. So, yeah. Okay, this is where we part ways with ideas. That's good. Absolutely. Totally. And whatever arguments we're going to make, they need to be made biblically, right? Not philosophically or because of feelings or experience. They need to be made from the text of Scripture. Um, okay, so uh, we got a few more minutes. So I think we can get to the end of this. Back to, let me just get us right back to kind of where we left off, which is that God alone is the self-existent one. And I, actually, let's talk about this for one more second, okay? Because I think this is kind of a fundamental exercise, and I don't think we've done it here before. But um, if I were to ask you the question, is God a contingent being or a non-contingent being, what would you say? Define contingent. Right, okay. So usually when I ask this question, people are like, I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to. Um, for something to be contingent, it means its existence has a prerequisite, okay? Uh, I mean, this desk is contingent, this desk here is contingent upon the classroom. It's contingent upon the miners that extracted the, me the metals. It's contingent upon the laborer who put the pieces together, right? So is God contingent or non-contingent in his being? Non-contingent, non that's what it means to be eternal or self-existent he is non-contingent okay now is god a god of love yes yes he is can love exist with only one being in three persons 
Yes, and that's where I'm going, right? So here's why the Christian theology of the Trinity is essential to what we believe. The God of Islam, who says he's non-contingent, he's eternal, he's everlasting, or, or you know, self-existent, he's a narcissistic jerk. Because he has no other, I mean, he's singular in his nature and his demand is for people to love him. God does not need us. He's non-contingent. And so in his very nature, for him to be loving, he has to be Trinitarian. Because otherwise, he's got no object to love. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it very well. But the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father, right? You have this community of love taking place in this God who is too one to be many and too many to be one. And so he's a trinity in his nature. And that makes his love true, but also still non-contingent. Does that make sense? So lots of people think God created man because God needed someone to love. No, God had everything he needed in his loving unity within the trinity for all eternity past. So even his love is self-existent. So we have really no answer about why God created man. Oh, yeah. It's only share, him can answer that. <laughs> to share his love. To share himself. To share his... To share... Because he's God. already perfect in, his, in, in the Trinity. And then, but he created man. But we cannot really answer that why he created man. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the creeds... Not, not necessarily the creeds. Sorry. Um... You know, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? The first one is... Um, why did God make you? Yeah, why did God make you, right? And the answer is... Um, to worship. To glorify him. To glorify him and enjoy him forever, right? So there's not like a, a specific verse maybe that we could go to that says like God made man simply for his glory. But like as you read Isaiah, as you read, um, you know, even Revelation... Like the answer that we get is actually that that's not entirely true, right? What is the verse in Isaiah? Is it Isaiah forty-five that said my that says like my children who I made for my glory, I will bring them from the ends of the earth. Does anybody know? This is one that I should know. Um, I might have to cheat and look this up. It actually doesn't say, why did God make you? That's like a paraphrase. It says, what is the chief and highest end of man? Yeah. That's true. But we, we can say that, in essence, everything God does is for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Isaiah 43. So I was off a little bit. Sorry. Isaiah 43, 7 gets pretty darn close to this. Um, right? Am I created for my glory? Yeah. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Um, and connected to this is lots of different stuff, right? His, his generosity, his love, his kindness. Those are all things that are for his glory. His justice, his perfection. 
Um, it, it's, it's all connected to that. So that's a good question. But God did not create us because he needs us. Okay? Um, God needs nothing. For him to be self-existent, he needs nothing. So this little scene here ends with um, verse 52. And uh, I just love the way that Mark does this. He kind of brings it back to the prior scene of the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What did they fail to understand about the loaves? What does this have what is the what do the loaves have to anything to do with Jesus walking on water? Jesus is kind of like the spiritual food that you know many people do not see it. He is absolutely the spiritual food, and John chapter 6 teases that out for us. Amen. But like what I would ask, the follow-up question is like, what, how, is, how does that connect with him walking on the water? Right? I, verse 52 might have been better placed back after verse 44. But Mark puts it here. And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to tie the, the feeding with the walking on water. They were afraid what is Jesus. the connection? They were afraid of Jesus because he was walking on the water. Yes. I mean, it was more than just the waves that they were afraid of. The, the parallels. They were afraid of Jesus. He's walking on water. And once he said it is I, I guess maybe because they didn't really know that trust it was him. But I think that what we can learn is that Jesus can do anything. They shouldn't be shocked that he's walking on water. He just made right out of thin air and everything else. And I think that's the point that Mark is getting at. Is like... Dum-dums, you just saw this dude feed 10, and let, let's just go with 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And again, this was not a magic trick. Like, he is creating new material from nothing to feed these people. And it's substantive. I mean, it's it's not wafers. Like, their, their stomachs are full. This man can do anything. And how come you didn't learn the lesson then? In fact, you even went out to tell other people about Jesus and you did miracles in his name. And then you saw him feed 5,000, 10,000 people. And now he's walking on water. How are you still not picking up on this? Right? And, and I mean, verse 52, in many ways, condemns them. Why? Why do they? I mean, what is the... The, the understanding or the lack of understanding is the result, but what is the underlying um, cause? Well, they're human, and, and like all humans, their hearts are hard. Yeah. And they've got to overcome that. Or right. It has to be overcome. Right. I mean, unbelief is simply an unwillingness or an inability to believe what God has said is true. It's the default. It is the default. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the lesson here in both the loaves and the walking on water is essentially the same. Jesus is God of the universe. He's God of the material world just as he is God of the spiritual heavens. There is no sphere where Jesus does not have authority. And his authority is bringing all things under submission to his will. Now think about that. Okay, because... There might be times where you are looking at your own finances and you're like, I don't know that God's really in charge here. 
You may be looking at the political mess. Going, yeah, I don't know. Like, I know God's in charge, but maybe not here. Right? Global conflicts, global markets, uh, you know, stuff going on maybe in your own job with your boss, or an illness in your family, cancer, you know. I, I know a couple that they've got a three-year-old daughter and she's going through, um, what's the blood disease? Leukemia. Leukemia, right? Um, but this is, Jesus is the God of the universe. There is no area where he does not have all authority. Now he does give it over to people. I mean, he gives permission to rulers and kings and governments to do things at certain points in history but they are doing it even under his authority. So let's look at a couple of these uh, cross-references. I mean, just other passages that touch on this. Uh, Let's do Hebrews chapter 1 first. Now, let's start with Colossians 1. We'll move from creation to continuance. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. I encourage you to turn there. We as Christians want to have a rich Christology, a rich biblical theology of who Jesus is. He's not some wimpy spirit man who kind of floated through life and was very nice. I mean, there are aspects of that that are true. But this is Jesus, eternal God in flesh, self-existent, the I am with all power and all authority. Picking up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By firstborn there, the text is not saying that he was the first made thing in creation. It is, this is a title. Firstborn in the biblical framework is the one who has all of the power and authority of the Father. Does that make sense? Okay, that's an important distinction. Put that up on the border is it providence that the kids are going to be talking about the exact same thing. Hey, there you go. No, it's just providence. I love it. That's rad. I didn't even notice that. That's what's going on in the cove today. Um, He's the firstborn of all creation, meaning he has the title of rulership, authority, over all of creation. What, what, what is the Father's is his in all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Man, reading that just gives me goosebumps. Like, that is... I cannot wait to see Christ like that in all of his fullness. That's who the disciples saw walking on the water. Right? And of course they didn't get it, but they definitely knew that something crazy was happening. Right, They were witnessing something that is inexplicable. Now go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Remember that verse, because we're going to talk about Joseph's dreams. And, um, well, really remember the next verse, because this will explain why God doesn't speak in dreams. Verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, I like to think about crazy like science things, and China supposedly has built a fusion reactor and uh, for like one millionth of one nanosecond they were able to power that thing up and it burned I think like a thousand times hotter than the sun and it's this giant machine that it probably fits in about the football field behind us over here and it cost billions of dollars to make and um you know, this is cutting edge energy technology. Okay, for like one millionth of a nanosecond, they were able to turn that thing on. It took years to build, and they were able to make fusion like the sun. Jesus, in his mind, keeps the fusion of all of the stars in the universe burning without even having to think deeply about it. Right? The atoms in your body are constituted in the order that they are because Jesus thinks about them in that order. Trillions of atoms in your body alone staying in the relationship they have to one another because Hebrews tells us he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You are so non-self-existent that if Jesus were to stop thinking about you for even a second, you would cease to be. And it's not difficult for him. Seven billion people on earth, trillions of stars in the universe, and he can do it all without breaking a sweat, right? That's the Jesus who they saw walking across the water. And it's no wonder then that the atoms beneath his feet were glad to hold his weight up as he walked delicately across the water. That's pretty incredible. And again, I mean, we tend to, there's a word that I like to mock a lot that you've probably heard me say, which is autonomy. Our culture talks a lot about autonomy, right? I'm an autonomous individual. I can do what I want with my body, my, my money, my self-image my time. I'm autonomous. And what a slap in the face to God that is. Because you wouldn't even have the capacity to form the word autonomy with your mouth if Jesus didn't give you the capacity to speak. That is the Jesus that the disciples were hanging around. And what did he do with that says that he made purification for sins right this God who is incomprehensible 
authoritative, self-existent, mighty, eternal, holy, perfect, beautiful, good. He chose to go to the cross that people might be redeemed from their sins. Rather than get into the next section, we'll end it there, but does anybody else want the last word? Any final thoughts on any of that? All right. Well, as you think about God, give him praise that he has given you life and he has seen fit to bring you into this creation. He deserves praise for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, through Christ you made all things for your glory because you are good and you are loving. And we think of, we think of just a, I think of just a big cup so full that it just has to spill over. That, that is your joy. That is, that is your goodness. That is your glory. Um, so expansive and limitless and without boundaries that you created an entire universe just for that glory to spill over into. And uh, I thank you that you have made it so we can see that glory and, and understand it and give you praise for it. And we thank you for Jesus, who is God in the flesh and who came with all authority over all creation and yet humbly that he would go to a cross to die, that we would be redeemed. We praise you for that. And I pray that, that we would actually think about these things, that we wouldn't go through our days unthinking about the self-existent God who brought all of this into being so that we might praise you. Um, and we thank you for your love and we thank you for your redemption and we thank you for your goodness and your wisdom. Let us walk in these things. In Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.